Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mind. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money, and now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome to today's program. A good day to each of you listening. Thanks for being with us this morning. I read an article recently from Social Security Advisors, and I found out something rather disturbing, and I think you'll find it disturbing also. It said 70% of Americans leave about $74,000 on the table when it comes to collecting their Social Security benefits, and if you're looking at a couple, that's Approximately $120,000 per couple. Well, my guest today, Kurt Zarnowski, and you know him. He's frequent with us and does a great job. He's going to talk and answer our questions to help us make sure that we're not leaving money on the table when it comes to collecting Social Security. So stay with us. You do want to miss uh, Kurt. He'll help us go through all the process that we need to know so we're not leaving That's $74,000 on the table. In the second half of the program, Justin Wright's here. He's going to discuss money management ideas for millennials over the past 50 years, from the baby boomers to the millennials of today. You know, we've undergone a lot of cultural and social changes, and the millennials are adults today, and how do they compare with previous generations? I'm sure if we got into a conversation, we could get some debate going on, but millennials, those ages 22 to 37, are delaying or foregoing marriage and have somewhat slower forming. They're somewhat slower forming when they look at households. They're not moving into that. They're staying at home. And for longer stretches of time, all that's part of this idea of the financial well-being of millennials, and it's complicated. Well, Justin Wright is here to help us understand the trends and the and answer your questions, whether you're a millennial living at home or you a millennial that... Uh, you don't want to continue to live at home. Justin's going to help us work through some of the answers that you've uh, asked questions about, so don't want to miss that part of the program. Speaking of millennials, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York says that student loan debt in the United States was 62% larger than credit card debt at the end of last year, 2019. Now, let me give you the numbers. Hold on to your seats. $1.5 trillion in student loan debt compared to 930 billion and both of these records or both of these numbers are record highs in the United States a lot of debt it's talk, talking about debt debt Boston College says that the retirement research that they're doing says that American workers today and I can understand this are retiring 3 years later than they did in the 1980s. It's because of all the debt. That's the bottom line. The Census Bureau, here's something you might want to think about. This is kind of important for the future. They published some alarming news, and I think it is alarming. They say that today, 2.5 people on average make up an average American household in 2019. The lowest average household size in the United States history. That's big. If you go back and compare that to 1960, the average household, 3.3. Well, coming up, Kurt Zarnowski, questions you may have about Social Security and Justin Wright. Money management for millennials. You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is... 
is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Securing Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Securing Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, welcome back. We are so privileged to have this uh, young man with us today. He is uh, just from outside Boston, and I mean, I'm assuming that his weather is a little different than ours, but he is a frequent guest of ours and friend of ours. We so much enjoy having Kurt with us, but it's Kurt Zarnowski, president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting. He is our Social Security expert and does a phenomenal job. Welcome to the program, Kurt. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to be back with you guys again this year. And uh, let me say, I am a millennial here living at home uh, with my uh, myself, uh, pondering whether I should leave or not. <laughs> well, don't ponder too long, man. You know, bottom line is, if you can stay there, stay there. That's the thing. Probably will. Yep. I just want to let you know, the weather here is probably a little bit uh, similar to what you're enjoying, and I use the term loosely down there, probably uh, mid-to-upper 40s and uh, overcast, and so not altogether different, not hard to believe. Not altogether, That's that's good. Well, I know that there are times we've talked, and you have definitely been uh, a little colder than we are. So you betcha. You got, glad to have you, Guy, with us today. We've got a couple of questions, but the first one that just everybody seems to know, you know, it's one of those that you they know they want to ask it, they know they need to know the answer, and they still sometimes make the wrong decision. But the question is, when should someone start receiving benefits from Social Security? Just this whole idea of full retirement, we talk about that. The idea of starting early, waiting late. Go through that process with us so that everybody can start with that and they know it for night for 2020. Sure. And basically, it is an individual decision. Um, I always say I hope people are making informed decisions about what's best for them. And in order to make an informed decision about what you should do, you need to know what you can do. And the basic options are this. You start by knowing what Social Security says is your full retirement age month. Now, when the program started back in 1935, full retirement age was set as the month someone turned age 65. It was 65 without exception, continued that way till 1983 when Congress changed the law an increased Social Security full retirement age for anyone born 1938 or later. Increase has gradually been phased in over time. We're at the point where for a big chunk of the baby boomers, and it was born between 1943 and 1954, our full retirement age is the month we turn age 66. But it's important to note, full retirement age continues to increase and tops out anyone born 1960 or later. Social Security full retirement age is the month you turn age 67. Now, understand this. Collecting at your full retirement age month isn't somebody's only option, but I always say in planning for retirement, you need to start by making sure you know what your full retirement age month is based on your year of birth, because many features of the program do flow from at least having reached your full retirement age. And if you opt to start collecting retirement benefits at that full retirement age month, that means one thing and one thing only, Jim. means you get 100% of the amount your work on earnings entitle you to collect. Full benefit paid the month you reach your full retirement age. But under the rules of the program, you have other options. You can start prior to full retirement age, if that makes sense for you. 
And under the rules today, you can start to collect retirement benefits as early as the month you turn age 62, or at any point in between, by the way. But the important note is Social Security is this social insurance program, and Congress has built certain social goals into it. And one is a hope that at the end of the day, everyone ends up with roughly the same amount of total lifetime benefits, regardless of when they start. And so if you opt to collect prior to attaining your full retirement age, well, by starting earlier, in theory anyway, you'll be collecting for a longer period of time. So you're going to find your monthly payment amount gets reduced. How much a reduction? Well, for each month prior to your full retirement age you opt to collect, you'll find your payment reduced by roughly half a percent per month. Half percent per month reduction, well, that translates into a 6% per year reduction by starting early. But the important thing is you don't have to start on your birthday. You don't have to start the first of the calendar year. But if you opt to start prior to reaching that full retirement age month, you're going to find your payment amount's been reduced by roughly half a percent for each month that you collect. And oh, yeah, by the way, Jim, it's a permanent reduction. Another myth that's out there, too many folks mistakenly think, yeah, I know I'll start early, I'll get less, but as soon as I hit my full retirement age, my payment will zoom back up. Uh Uh-uh. Permanent reduction. Again, the idea being starting sooner, in theory, then, means you're collecting for a longer period of time, so you find your payment permanently reduced by that half a percent for each month you collect. And just as you can start early, you have options to delay past full retirement age, if that makes sense for you. And with that social insurance idea in place, if you think about it, if you've opted to defer, well, by starting later, in theory, again, you'll now be collecting for a shorter period of time. So by all rights, if you wait, your payment amount ought to be increased. And it is. These are referred to as delayed retirement credits. And for each month past your full retirement age month that you opt to defer, you'll find your payment now increased by two-thirds of a percent per month. Now, two-thirds percent per month, that translates into an 8% per year increase by waiting. But again, you don't have to not collect for a full year. For each month past your full retirement age, you defer benefit amount permanently increased by that two-thirds percent. It is a key thing, Jim. While you never have to take your Social Security payments, not like there's a required minimum distribution, These delayed retirement credits only accrue from full retirement age month until the month you turn age 70. Full retirement age to age 70, each month you defer payment permanently increased by that two-thirds percent. You opt to wait past age 70 before starting, which is certainly an option. You're not going to see any additional increase by waiting past that point. So as I lay it out to folks in terms of planning for retirement, it's really kind of this continuum. You can start as early as age 62, makes no sense to wait past age 70. So which point along that continuum makes the most sense in terms of collecting, recognizing you start right at full retirement age month, you get 100% of your benefit. You opt to start prior to that, you get a lower amount for the rest of your life. You opt to defer past that point, you get a higher payment amount for the rest of your life. 
If you just tuned Packers. in, I think you're perfect. Yep. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the yep. bottom line is, if you just tuned in, this is Kurt Zarnowski. He's talking about the, the question, when should you start receiving retirement? And what you said, and I think, Kurt, if you start early, it's less. If you wait and you wait till age 70 and we move out to the end, it's more. And that's a planning question. That's something somebody has to work through that process, looking at the numbers, seeing what best fits them. Yeah, and, you know, the things you're looking at and considering, you know, Jim, and I'm sure you talked about it on the show, someone's health, longevity, do they need the money? They're going to keep working. All those factors come into play. And as I said right up front, from my perspective, it's an individual decision. person isn't in the best position to know what he or she should be doing. And I never tell people what they should do, but I want them to understand what they can do so they can make that informed decision about what they should do. Absolutely. Great, great answer, as always, a great answer. The next question, though, a lot of people think about if my spouse dies or if I'm divorced, am I eligible to collect if it's higher than what mine? Can I collect my spouse's benefit, and when can I collect that? That's been a question we've seen a lot. And the, the, the spouse or divorced spouse, a widow, can they collect a benefit? Sure. And so it's important to distinguish between what Social Security considers spousal benefits and divorce spousal benefits and widow or widower benefits, survivor benefits. Spousal benefits are paid when both members of the couple or ex-couple are still alive. Survivor benefits are what's paid when one member of the couple has passed away. In spousal benefit situations, and the program's completely gender neutral, works equally well either way, But we'll say for illustrative purposes today, we're talking about the husband being the higher earner, the wife being the lower earner. Can the wife collect spousal benefits based on the husband's work activity? And what Social Security compares is the wife's own Social Security benefit with 50% of the husband's. If the wife's own benefit is more than 50% of the husband's, then the wife collects solely based on her work record. If the wife's benefit is less than 50% of the husband's full retirement age amount, well, she always gets her own plus some additional money on top of that to bring her up to 50%. As I said, it's totally gender neutral, works equally well if the wife were the higher earner. The husband could collect spousal benefits if his benefit is less than 50% of his wife's. Divorce situation, marriage needs to have lasted at least 10 years, but the same comparison is made between someone's own retirement benefit and 50% of the exes. Now, though, when we're talking about survivor benefits, widows and widowers, here the comparison is not between 50% and the person's own. No, it's a comparison between the person's own benefit and 100% of the other person's benefits. So widow and widower, uh, widow situation, husband has passed away. Widow is able to move from her own benefit up to 100% of what the deceased was collecting. But key thing is in this situation, whether it's spousal benefits or survivor benefits, you collect on one account or the other, you don't get both at once. So in the spousal situation, it's not like the wife gets her own benefit plus a full 50%? No, she collects one amount to the other, whichever one is higher. In the survivorship cases, it's not like she collects her own plus 100% of her deceased spouses. No, one amount to the other, whichever one is higher. But in survivorship cases, comparison between the individual's own and 100% 
of what the deceased was collecting while both members of the couple are alive. Comparison between the person's own and 50% of the other members. You know, we're listening to Kurt Zernowski of Zernowski Consultant. He is a frequent guest, always talks, tells us a lot about Social Security. And I think that's why when people know that you're going to be on the air, Kurt, they they ask questions. And here's a question. I I really appreciated the question because I think it's coming from someone trying to, to help a child understand the benefits. So here's the question. What is the benefit for a child if dad was collecting SSDI, and I want you to explain what SSDI is, before his death, would the child be able to receive a payment for college from dad's SSDI payment? Or would he be eligible for something like that? That's their question. All right. So SSDI is Social Security Disability Insurance. You know, the Social Security program, we focus on this show most of the time on the retirement aspects. But with Social Security, it's a family protection program, provides cash assistance for workers who become disabled and family members of workers who become disabled, as well as survivor benefits like life insurance. If somebody who's worked and paid in the system passes away, leaving behind minor children, those kids are able to collect as well. So for Social Security, whether they're talking about a parent collecting a retirement benefit, a disability benefit, or the parent passing away, Social Security pays benefits to children who are under the age of 18 or up through age 19 if still a full-time student in high school. Now, back in the day, prior to 1983, Social Security would continue survivor benefits or child's benefits through college, but that was eliminated probably 30-plus years or so ago. So in answer to this question, Father's been collecting Social Security disability benefits. While the father's collecting, assuming the child is under the age of 18, the child is eligible for a payment equal to 50% of the father's SSDI payment. Now, there is a family maximum that comes into play, depending on how many other people are collecting. But basically, while the parent is alive, child's benefit rate is 50% of the parent's amount. The parent passes away, well, Social Security will base the survivor benefit on 100% of what the deceased was collecting at the time he passed away. So his SSDI payment is the basis for survivor benefits to be paid. And the surviving child now eligible for a payment equal to 75% of the parent's SSDI monthly amount. Again, Family maximum comes into play depending on how many other folks are collecting. Each one may not collect, may not end up with 75%, but the basic survivor rate is 75% of the deceased's benefit. Now, whether the child can collect through college, probably not, because again, since 1983, child's benefits have ended at age 18 or through age 19 if still a full-time student in high school, but no additional payments past age 19 under the Social Security program since 1983 amendments. So what happens there is the, the that child loses that. I understand that. So the child loses it if they're going to college, they're not eligible. Is that what you're saying? Correct. 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 Past okay. age 18, past age 18, or through age 19 if full-time student in high school, but that's it. 
okay. in terms of Social Security payments. And you did mention that there was a family maximum. If there's multiple children you have to, and a spouse, or, you know, a widowed spouse, you have to take that in consideration, being that there is a family maximum also. And the family maximum is generally about 180% of what the deceased was collecting. So that's going to be divvied up among however many people are are eligible to collect. I, I think that's important for people to know. There is always a family maximum, and you know that instead of trying to think you've got five kids or, or whatever, you, there's going to be this maximum amount that you're going to be eligible for. Here's another question, though, and I think it's a question that I think I know the answer, but I wanted to hear it from the expert. Would a foster child who's not adopted be eligible to collect a benefit from a foster parent that's lived with them for ten over over 10 years? And the answer is no. That's what it's, I thought. Uh, God love those folks who serve as foster parents, but simply fostering a child doesn't create any type of eligibility to Social Security benefit payments for that foster child. So should that parent, should that foster, let's go back to grandparents then. It's, it's, it's also, they're not eligible. If a grandparent is rearing a child, we see a lot of that today, where sure, you've got have, grandparents but, taking care of kids. If Is that Child eligible for Social Security benefits? And there's a distinction between grandparents and simple foster parents. In foster parent situations, the only way the child becomes eligible is if the foster parent adopts the child. Now, with grandparents, though, a little more wiggle room, if you will. All right. And hang on. All right. And, hang on. I got to so. stop. <laughs> well, hang on to that. I like that. He said wiggle room. That means this is a good answer coming up. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Kurt Zarnowski, he's going to answer the question. If you're a grandparent, you got wiggle room. We're going to find out the definition from a guy from right outside of Boston. What's wiggle room? For the guys in the South, we kind of got an idea what that means. But Kurt's going to tell us what What's wiggle room when it comes to can a child collect if you're the grandparent and you're deceased, can the child collect Social Security? We're going to find out from Kurt Zarnowski. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker and Justin Wright are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc., member FNIRA, SIPC. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large-cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. And now, back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome back. We're talking with Kurt Zarnowski, president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting. He is talking about Social Security. He is an expert, and you can't... Talk to him five minutes, and you know that he knows his subject. We've talked about full retirement. What does that mean? You can collect 100% of what you have worked and earned for, and you've done all that, and, and you're able to do that, whether you're a millennial. We'll find out a little bit about that in a second. But we also talked about retiring early with Social Security at 62 or waiting past age seven or to age 70 and how you'd get several dollars more, two-thirds more per month or 8% per year. We've talked about whether or not if you were a spouse, divorced spouse with 10 years, are you eligible? And what are you eligible if you're a widow or widower? Well, all those are subjects that you want to go back and listen to. Just click on the podcast and, and, and just sit back and listen to Kurt tell us all about Social Security. But here's the question. We're going to define 
I don't know if I need to define wiggle room. I think everybody in the world knows what wiggle room means. But the question that we asked earlier that I think is one that we have from a client that a listener that came in and said, all right, if I have my children, I'm rearing, taking care of my children at home. I am the grandparent. Are they going to be eligible to, to receive a benefit should I pass away? And it's a great question, and I can't wait to hear the answer. So, Kurt, we're all ears. So perhaps I uh, mischaracterized as wiggle room, uh, <laughs> but what, what grandparents, though, as opposed to foster parents, there, there's more of a possibility of benefits being paid. Now, grandparent adopts the grandchild? Absolutely. They get eligibility for child's benefits based on the work record of the grandparent. But in addition to that, beyond just adoption, the law allows for situations for a grandchild to be paid Social Security benefits based on the grandparent's work record, but a couple of conditions have to be met. First and foremost, the child's natural or adoptive parents both must be either deceased or collecting Social Security disability, and that child must have been living with and supported by the grandparent for at least a year prior to the grandparent becoming eligible for benefits or prior to the grandparent passing away. So again, parents have to be deceased or disabled, and the child needs to have been living with the grandparent for at least a year prior to the grandparent becoming eligible for benefits, either for retirement benefits or disability benefits, him or herself, or the grandparent passing away. In those situations, the child, the grandchild treated as if he or she were a child eligible for 50% of the grandparent's full retirement age amount if the grandparent is collecting retirement benefits or disability benefits, 75% of the grandparent's benefit rate if the grandparent has passed away. So with foster children, yeah, you need to have adopted. With grandchildren, you can adopt. But in addition, there is this other avenue for eligibility. The parents are both deceased or collecting disability, and the child's been living with and receiving support from the grandparent for at least a year prior to the grandparent's eligibility. Kurt, would that that also fall under that family maximum, let's say? Absolutely. Okay, so there would be back to that 180% then. Yep. Hey, let me just make one clarification, too, on family maximum. We get a lot of questions about this. You know, if the family maximum only pertains to a situation where you've got a number of different people collecting on one worker's work record. You've got a situation, though, where you have husband and wife, for example, both of whom have worked and paid into the Social Security program. Each one has earned a maximum Social Security benefit. Each one of those is going to collect that maximum retirement benefit. There's no offsetting between members of a couple in a household, for example. Each one's collecting based on their respective work record. The family maximum doesn't limit the total amount of benefits being paid into the house if you've got multiple people collecting on their respective work record. The family maximum only comes into situation where you've got a number of different people all collecting on one worker's work history. 
That that I think helps everybody put it in perspective. The the idea behind the family. I appreciate you answering that. Well, last question, and Justin Wright's going to help me answer this later on, but I really want you to answer it. Millennials are always concerned. In fact, Justin is a, a close to being a millennial. He's got all the ideas. He works with them a lot. But here's the question, and it's one that you know. You already know where I'm headed with this. Millennials say. Well, I've got to do some planning around Social Security because I'm not going to be getting Social Security when I turn 60 or 65. What's your thoughts? So I get this question all the time, and uh, I think a couple issues come to mind for me immediately. Um, First and foremost, people need to recognize that the Social Security program is more than just a retirement program. We talked about some of the aspects today. There's disability protection for workers and their families. There's survivor benefit protection for workers and their families. So when I get confronted with the question, well, is there going to be anything there for me in the future? I turn that right around and say, hey, you need to focus on the fact because of the disability protection and the survivor benefit protection, there are potential benefits to a millennial today. Working, paying into the system as family. Worker becomes disabled, regardless of the age, worker passes away, those family members are going to be eligible to collect as well. So it's important to focus on the fact that Social Security is this full family protection program, and it's more than just a retirement program. But looking down the road, you know, I often get this question, I think you've heard me say it on the show before, when asked, I like to refer to Mark Twain, who once said, reports of my demise are greatly exaggerated. I think reports of Social Security's demise are greatly exaggerated. Millennials tend to think, oh, there's not going to be anything there for me in the future. I like to remind them that Social Security's primary source of income, payroll taxes collected from employers, employees, and people who are self-employed. So looking down the road, absent a complete and total collapse of the United States economy so that nobody anywhere is working, Social Security is always going to have a revenue stream of some sort. It's never going to be nothing coming in. The issue, though, is, looking down the road, is that revenue stream thought to be enough to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised? And each year, Social Security's Board of Trustees issues financial report, the health of the program. 2019 report, the most recent one, projects that is currently constituted, assuming no changes to the program whatsoever, They project Social Security will have enough money on hand to cover 100% of promised benefits through the end of the year 2034. And beginning at that point, while it won't, absent changes, have enough money to cover 100% of the promised benefits, it will have enough revenue from those payroll taxes to cover 80% of the benefits going forward. So the issue confronting Congress and the American public on the future of the program is Not how do you close a 100% funding gap by tomorrow. No, it's how between now and the end of the year 2034, you craft some reasonable solutions to the program that close a 20% funding gap. Worst case scenario, I like to say, 2034, you get 1,000 bucks a month. 2035, you don't get nothing. You get 80% of what you're receiving. So as I said, I think reports of Social Security's demise are greatly exaggerated. For millennials, they need to understand it's never going to be a situation where there's no money there whatsoever, but they also need to focus on the fact that it is this complete family protection program, and that by working, paying into the program, they're earning disability protection for themselves and their family. They're working and earning survivor benefit protection for their family if something were to pass, if they were to pass away prematurely. Kurt Zarnowski, president and founder of Zarnowski Consulting. Kurt, it's always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for today and have a great day.
All right, Jim, stay warm down there now. Yes, sir. It's Abs- chilly from your perspective. <laughs> Absolutely. It's balmy here today, though, in the 40s. Though. <laughs> You're in shorts, right? I am. All right, man. Thank you so Talk much. You. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to be talking with Justin Wright in just a second. He's got some ideas, some money management tips for millennials. Whether they're you're a millennial, whether you're a millennial or you're happening to have one in your home that's still living there, you're not going to want to miss what Justin's going to be talking about. So stay with us. He'll be with us in just a second. We're going to take a money minute break with someone that always does a great job talking to us about a Mid-South history moment. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and this is Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. There are many great moments in the career of Senator Kenneth McKellar. He was the first senator from Tennessee to complete more than three terms, having served from 1917 to 1953, and held the position of President Pro Tem of the Senate under the current system in Congress during the Truman administration. With two economic landmarks named in his honor, Lake McKellar next to the Memphis Industrial District on President's Island and McKellar Airport in Jackson, Tennessee, it comes as no surprise that the senator was an early supporter of the creation of the Tennessee Valley Authority during the New Deal era. Despite the initial support, McKellar's relationship with the TVA grew strained over time as Tennessee landowners felt they were not properly reimbursed for property acquired by the TVA. McKellar, who served as chairman of the Powerful Appropriations Committee, intervened on the landowner's behalf. He knew that the uranium enrichment program for the Manhattan Project, which created the atomic bomb, was heavily dependent on the electricity produced by the TVA and threatened to defund the program until the TVA fully reimbursed the landowners. After President Roosevelt's death, his successor, Harry Truman, did not appoint a vice president which placed McKellar next in line to become president until the law was changed in 1947. After running for a seventh Senate term, McKellar lost to Albert Gore Sr. in 1952. A longtime ally of E.H. Crump, McKellar's defeat in the senatorial race, coupled with the victory of an anti-Crump progressive candidate in the gubernatorial election, marked the end of an era in Tennessee public life. This has been another Mid-South History Moment, brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. Investors' anticipated tax bracket in retirement will determine whether or not a Roth account versus a traditional retirement account will provide more money in retirement. Generally, investors who are in a higher tax bracket at retirement relative to their current tax bracket while making contributions to a Roth account benefit more than an investor who is in a lower tax bracket at retirement. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. And welcome back, my guest, Justin Wright. Justin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jim. You know, we've been talking to Kurt, and you've been listening to Kurt. He's talked about the millennial problems and the discussion about whether or not millennials will have retirement when they're at age 65. And he says it's probably exaggerated the demise of Social Security. So I know a lot of your, when you talk with millennials, and you do a lot of business with millennials, what are some of the tips that you see as being most I guess the kind of the important ones that you want them to walk out of your office saying, hey, I get it. This is what I need to be working on. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one would just be creating an emergency fund for themselves. 
And the big thing about that is, so when you have an emergency, you, air conditioner breaks, or you just need to fix your car, you don't have to go to your credit card. You can just go to your emergency fund. That makes a lot of sense, especially when we talked about credit card debt. Is it an all-time high? Student loans are at all-time. Do you see a lot of millennials with student loans today? Oh, it, it's very big. I do a lot of work with dental students. So. Okay. Significant, so, significant amount loans. of dollars there. So they're struggling. Sometimes they're living at home, not out of desire, but out of necessity because of that amount of debt. De- definitely. So, so saving money, do you, is it hard for that to happen? Is that a discipline that they don't have, uh, that age group? Or is it something that, yes, as long as they understand it's a priority, they move right into doing saving? It depends on the person. I think some, some people you definitely have to coach into it. Others are really open to it and definitely understand the importance of it. So is this, okay, I understand you see the importance of it. Do they have, I mean, my generation, I'm a baby boomer. My generation had this dream. You stepped out of college. You hoped you didn't have a lot of debt. If you did, you paid for it. When we got married, I had been able to pay for my college because I'd saved. My parents had saved. My work during college. My wife had some debt, so we began to pay that. Not a lot, but some. And as we went through that, we had this American dream of purchasing a home. Do you find that that's also the case with millennials today? Definitely. They still want to buy homes. Uh, Tell me about that. How do you help them with that? So, um, I mean, with home buying, they need to be thinking about the mortgage, how are they going to get approved for it, and the down payment. And, I mean, it's just planning on the front end. When you talk about qualifying for a mortgage with all the student debt, do you find that to be, how do you coach somebody through that? That can be pretty onerous, can it? It definitely can. Um, A lot of my clients, like I said, are, are dental students. So, I mean, they were eligible for doctor loans and stuff like that for homes. So it's not as much of a problem. But yeah, having a huge amount of debt in your back pocket, it can definitely affect. Well, how much money do I need to have then if I'm going to set it up? What would you tell someone if I'm going to purchase a home? What would you, how do you guide them through that? Okay. So on the low end, you need somewhere between three to three and a half percent for a down payment, but you're going to need another two to 4% for things like appraisals, taxes, and just cover uh, closing costs. And But really, the target number would be 20% for a down payment to avoid pr- uh, private mortgage insurance, which costs anywhere from half a percent to one and a half percent of the loan amount each year. So when someone's saving money, whether it's emergency fund money or they're saving money to buy a house, okay, I get that. Where do you tell them to put this money? Is this in the sock in the backyard of tin can, or or what are you telling them to do? Because today it's hard to find a place that you can put money and get any type of reasonable interest rate because interest rates are so low. But is that still the place that you recommend that they put something like that? When they're first starting out, I can definitely recommend something like a FDIC insured savings account, just because of the ease. I mean, you just go to your bank and set one up. Um, But I also like money market deposit accounts where it's set up with us. So with the emergency account, if you just have a a bucket of money, some people are liable to just spend it on a new television. But there's a little bit of accountability when you need to call somebody to say, hey, I need $2,000 because I need a timing belt replaced on my car. Versus, hey, I need two thousand for this cool TV I saw at Costco. <laughs> so, so the reality is, the tin can doesn't talk back to you, right? <laughs> I absolutely, I understand that. So, you're saying that to set the money aside, do it in something that is FDIC. FDIC. I couldn't say it either. FDIC, yeah, yeah, insured. So, I understand that. But now, there, there's a battle going on. Okay, emergency fund. Got to save some money for an emergency. How much, by the way? How much money? 
So it, the general rule of thumb is three to six months of expenses, and that would include your groceries, mortgage, transportation, life insurance, health insurance, anything you have to pay. But uh, depending on personal uh, situations, I, I can recommend up go, going up to a year in some cases. In some for cases. Ser- for some people, some yeah. Some people, okay. So let's just say three to six months mm-hmm. minimum for emergency fund. And you said somewhere between three to even 5% for a down payment, then you're saying that's minimum yes. for a home. Yeah. Okay. So if they go to buy a house, up to 5%. So now they're saving quite a bit of money, and you're saying be disciplined about that. Mm, definitely. All right, when we come back, I want to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the they go to work, and should they be putting money in their 401k plan? There's two questions I want to ask you. 401k plan, and I want to get your opinion on really what we should be doing about this coronavirus, okay? Definitely. What, what investment? We've seen the market. It's moving, and let's talk about that. So we've got two questions for Justin when we come back. What about millennials and how much retirement? Should they be retired trying to set aside money for their 401k? Or let's put it to another question, is retirement important at that point? And the second question is, what's some things he should be telling us about the coronavirus? We need to find out about that. What are some things about the investment side should we be doing when it comes to the coronavirus? Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Podcasts for Talk Money are available for iOS mobile devices in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. For a Roth IRA, earnings withdrawn prior to reaching age 59 and a half and or not meeting the five-year holding period may be subject to a 10% penalty in addition to income tax. After-tax contribution amounts are generally returned income tax-free. However, for Roth conversions, if converted amounts are not held for the five-year period, distributions may be subject to a 10% penalty. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. While we're talking with Justin Wright, and he is a financial planner at Shoemaker Financial, and he works a lot with millennials. He's said dental students, he's a lot of professionals, and also, but basically works with people that are needing a financial advisor to guide them through the maze of what all the decisions they have to make, especially when it comes to money management at that early age in life, some keeping them from making some mistakes. He's talking about being sure they have a three to six month emergency fund, make sure that that emergency fund is FDIC insured, uh, it doesn't have to go in the tin can in the backyard. In fact, he says that's not the place that tin can doesn't talk back to you. If you're going to try to buy a TV or go out and spend the money unwisely, you need somebody to check you, maybe a little accountability there. That's important. I like that. And also, he says, if you're thinking about the big leap into home ownership, 3 to 5%, 5% would be best minimum for the down payment. Save that money. Be sure you're setting it aside. Just, just be systematic about it. Be disciplined. Be intentional. These are all buzzwords that I think, uh, Justin, you do a great job of, of helping people understand. But the question is, do a, does a person, do they need at, at this early age, I'm talking about 30 years old, to set aside money for retirement? Should they be contributing to the 401k? Definitely. I think they should start uh, contributing to the 401k the day they start work. Uh, and that's because? because why now? Come on. All right. So our generation it will most assuredly live longer than that of our parents. And it will probably be a much more expensive life given medical science. And so and furthermore, our money's probably going to have to clear a few more hurdles along the way. Big hurdles. Big hurdles. Like, okay. So, so help me with this. Now, I'm assuming that if I'm getting a match, that's probably a no-brainer. I should at least save up to the match. Yes, you should definitely get 100% of whatever your company's match is. But now you've got this problem going on in my head, okay? I'm 30 years old. I'm trying to save money for the emergency fund. Mm-hmm. 
I'm trying to pay off debt. I'm trying to make sure that I am uh, going to have some you know, way to buy a home at some point in time. I, I'm going to get married. I, I, all these things that I dream about. And you're telling me that I need to go ahead and set some in my 401k. And I, I just that's hard for me to put around my head at this age. I, I totally get that. The, the fact of the matter is you will have a very long retirement. And if you don't start saving on the front end very early, you're probably going to have to save more than you'd like later on in life. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you giving us these money management tips from millennials. You do a great job. You might want to listen to this program again on a podcast. But let me say this. There's so many things going on right now, but the media is talking about, obviously, the coronavirus. And we're seeing every day something new about that. What are you telling? What are you telling investors at this point? I know that we talk about not panicking, but what do you say to them? I, literally, pretty much that. Okay, I mean, don't panic. Uh, right, I mean, that's good. right, right. First off, would be just stop listening to the news uh, to the noise. You go on the news, like CNN or the newspaper, and everybody is just talking about the skies falling. And that's literally their job is to be entertainers and to talk about what's bad. That's what gets ratings. So you need to just stop listening to that. And just continue on your path. And stay with, stay with your big picture. Stay right. With- you got to stay with the big picture because a lot of people are, we're talking about retirement money. And people will call up and say, hey, do I need to get out of the market because of the coronavirus? Right. Well, well you're not going to retire for 35 years. I mean, we're, this is like you're going on a road trip to California and you hit some rain in Arkansas and you just turn around. <laughs> That's a, that is a vivid. <laughs> I get it. Right. I get it. That's great. Yeah. So you have to keep in mind, you've got 30 years. It rain's going to be wet, but it's not going to, you know. You, right. You may have to slow down. You may have a setback. I have to pull over, but you can continue on your path. All right. What's another thought for you? So a, a big other one would be don't be tempted by emotion. Uh, volatility makes you stressful. And once when, you start feeling stressed and start feeling emotions, we do dumb things with our money. That makes a lot of sense there. I, I fully understand that. And that emotions can be sometimes our biggest, most, I guess, our biggest evil when it comes to investing, Definitely. especially with volatility going on. Right. And, you know, after 2008, the people that pulled out of the market and stayed out never got to uh, to take advantage of the market coming back up. That's a good point. You know, a lot of people forget this. And I appreciate you just bringing it down to so simple term, terms. I mean, bottom line, don't listen to the noise. Uh, staying focused. That's that's very, very good. Now, emotions, I understand. Don't get caught up in emotion. Is there something else that you think is important for people to, to get? I think it's important to stay flexible. And one of the ways you can do that is with active management of your funds and not you actively managing it, just trusting professionals and fund managers to do that on your behalf. So let them do the job. Let them do the job. That's their job. They have spent decades researching it and that's their literal their job. Wow. <laughs> Great advice. Don't panic. This is uh it's a volatile market. You need to stay into that understanding it's a volatile market. So don't listen to the noise. I get that one. Stay focused on the big picture. I get that. And again, you know, be just not tempted by your emotions. Well, appreciate you listening. Thanks so much, Justin. You gave us tremendous information. Thank you, Jim. Well, you've been listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. My guest today, Kurt Zarnowski, he is a guru when it comes to Social Security. And Justin Wright, the guru when it comes to money management tips for millennials. If you have additional questions for Justin and would like to talk with him personally, call him at 757-5757. We hope you've 
enjoyed today's program. As always, we want to say thank you for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll get them on the program as soon as possible. And to find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Thanks for listening. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker and Justin Wright are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc. Member FNIRA, SIPC. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.